through 25 seasons. Hey! 4,561 episodes. I believe the Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly. I miss him every single minute. The LOLs, the moments that mattered, the eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this show is I think the purpose of death is to remind you how to live in the moment every day. And I, I wanted to talk to somebody who knows a whole lot about that, the inventor, the creator, actually, of the hospice movement, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, which I'd read her book, Wheel of Life, and um, she was in preparation for dying herself. So the death and dying lady was getting ready to die. But I went out to Arizona to talk to her and found out that she's not so keen on dying right now. <laughs> she's not so keen on dying right now. I walked in expecting to find her, like, dying. And uh, she said, well, she's kind of iffy about it right now. If you've seen someone you love go to a hospice, or maybe you've read a book about how to cope with death, you have this woman to thank. She is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and if her name is not familiar to you, her work surely is. Born the smallest of triplets in Switzerland, Elizabeth began her life with a strong will and fierce determination to forge her own identity. It was in American hospitals that Elizabeth, now a doctor, would find her true calling. She noticed that dying patients had been set aside, rarely spoken to, but she insisted they be heard. Her legendary book on death and dying would be published, becoming a classic text. In it, Elizabeth identified what she called the five stages of death, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally, acceptance. Today, she's 71 years old, debilitated by a series of strokes. In a bit of poetic irony, the woman referred to as the death and dying lady now finds herself at the end of her life. Recently, I went to Arizona to talk to Elizabeth again. Great to see you after all these years. Do you remember? You yes. have the big afro. A big That's afro. All I remember. Big afro. Yeah. Elizabeth says she's ready to die, but she's not going gently. She's as feisty <laughs> and opinionated as ever. And from this Swiss country doctor's lifelong research on death and dying, we can all take away lessons about living and the wheel of life. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has written The Wheel of Life. It is an autobiography, and during our recent visit, I asked her to talk about how she feels now that she is reaching the end of her life. Tell us exactly what it is you have and what has caused this debilitation. I had a stroke on Mother's Day. Uh-huh. What year? Two and a half years ago. Two and a half years ago. And I've been paralyzed on my left side. Mm-hmm. And then I had a frozen shoulder, and then I got kidney stones, and then I broke my hip, one thing after another. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting in a chair 15 hours a day like a zombie, not able to do anything. When you were... 
15 hours a day in the chair, were you hoping for your own death? Oh, every day, every minute. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't stand it. So are you in the process now, or do you think you are, are you fighting to live, or are you willing to? There are days to... when I'm up to here and don't want to any part of it, and there are days when I think maybe it's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Did you go through those stages yourself of denial? I was angry, 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 and enraged. Nothing but anger and negative. So no denial for you? No, are you kidding? No. <laughs> no, no denial. Just no angry. bargaining. No bargaining. I gave God hell. I called him every name in the book in every language. Mm -hmm. No said, bargaining? No depression? No. Depression came afterwards. Mm -hmm. And then you started to accept it or not? Well, <laughs> I'm accepting it, but I'm accepting to die would be great, but I now have to start from scratch again. That I'm very leery about. Starting from scratch? You yeah. mean becoming ill all over and again? The, or No, to get well and to live. Mm -hmm. It's much harder when you're ready to take off. It's like you're boarded a plane and they don't take off, and you sit and wait and don't know are they going or not. Well, when you've spent your life studying death and dying, it obviously gives you a different kind of respect for the time you do spend here on the planet. It was nearly 30 years ago that many of us were first introduced to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her work. Ironically, many of us first heard about her in the magazine called Life. In 1969, Life magazine featured a story about Elizabeth seminars. Rather than simply lecturing to her class, she would sit and interview a dying patient on stage, asking them questions that no one had dared ask before about what it feels like to be dying. Elizabeth suddenly found herself in great demand. She traveled around the world, lecturing to more than 15,000 people a week. Millions would find comfort and wisdom in her words that provided great lessons for us all. What are the greatest lessons you've learned here? Do what feels right, not what your head tells you to do. And never listen to other people when they tell you you have to do this and that. Do what feels right to you, not to other people. Otherwise, I would have become an office clerk. Because that's what your father said yeah. you had to become. Yeah, and he yeah. was a very bossy guy. He said, you do that, no question asked. And to say, learn how to say no early. Learn did that. how to say no early. You yeah. did that. You spoke of when you were at the concentration camp, Golda, the woman who was waiting for you outside, and you asked the question, how could human beings treat each other she this way? She taught me that. She said, in every human being, is a Hitler, and every human being is also a pet Mother Teresa. You know, my she friend Maya Angelou says Teresa. that, too, that we are capable of each human being. Every yeah. human being is capable of the worst yeah. and capable of the yeah. best. And she taught me that. And I was thinking my brains out. I said, I'm not the Hitler. Right. And then when I hitchhiked back through Germany in an attempt to make it back to Switzerland, and I knew that there is a big Hitler in me because I was so hungry. I didn't have any food for three days. And I swear, if a child would have walked by me with a piece of bread in her hands, I would have been capable of stealing a bread out of that child's hand. And then I knew that's what she talked about. That's what the Hitler in all of us is. 
you say in the Wheel of Life. You say you've never met a patient, any race, any background, uh, from any part of the world who did not, in their dying moment, yearn for love. Naturally. That's a human experience, a human need. So no matter what their background were, was yeah. or what kind of person they had been. Yeah. True. In that moment. Not just in that moment, but in that moment they admitted. They would admit it. Yeah, at the end, I always said half chokingly, but it's always true. The only honest people in the world left are psychotic patients, very young children and dying patients. They are not phony baloney. They are the only honest people left in the world. Well, now, what do you think of that? Yeah. Do you think that's true? It's so interesting, though, when you have conversations, and uh, we're going to be talking about the book Tuesdays with Moray, with Mitch in a, in a little bit, too, uh, who spent time with his professor who was dying and wrote a book about it. Um, and people who've had near-death experiences say this all the time, that when you go over to the other side and you are, you know, in the, quote, judgment, that the only question that ever matters is who did you love and how did you lead your life through love? Do y'all believe that? So what are we rushing around so much for? Is, is, the, is the issue. I don't know. One of the world's leading experts on death and dying, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, is now herself preparing to die. And I went to visit her at her home in Arizona. We talked about her amazing life, the controversies that have followed her over the years. She was one of the first people in America to speak out about AIDS. And she's never been afraid of what other people might think of her. Elizabeth's homes have been hit by fire twice, both times arson was suspected. The first fire destroyed her home in Southern California, while the second leveled her home in rural Virginia, a place she called Healing Waters Farm. It was there in the scenic Shenandoah Mountains where she planned to build a hospice for AIDS babies. But her plans were met with resistance in that quiet community. Nothing was left after the fire. All her possessions were destroyed. What amazes me about your life story, certainly parts of your life story, is that you kept getting up. Your home is burned down in one city, you keep getting up. And then the last time you were burned out of your home for trying to adopt 20 AIDS babies yeah. on the farm in Virginia, and everyone knows it was arson, nothing's ever been, been done about it, you never gave up. I'm stubborn, I told you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, that was a blessing because I never had to pack. <laughs> I'm, I'm a collector and my house is full of stuff. Mm -hmm. I maybe it's taken me a year or two years to pack all my stuff to move. But you I lost all your father's diaries. You lost things everything. that cannot be replaced. Yeah. Everything. It was a blessing. The only thing I miss once in a while, my diaries and my photographs. But I can do without. It mm -hmm. doesn't terribly matter. Well, from the time she was a little girl, Elizabeth has been motivated by her conscience, uh, which is a way I think we all should live, and by an innate sense of compassion for other people. For, for a young woman growing up during the Second World War, the daily reports of horror motivated her to go help the victims of the concentration camps. As a young, idealistic doctor, Elizabeth went off to Poland after the Bitter World War to volunteer her help. She found herself in Majdanek, one of the Nazi concentration camps where she saw firsthand the horror of the Holocaust. It was there she discovered a symbol that would foretell her life's work, butterflies. 
a mysterious message carved into the walls of the bunks by the prisoners who were waiting to die. How did people, especially mothers and children, survive those weeks and days before their certain deaths? Inside, I saw bare wooden bunks crammed together five deep. On the walls, people had carved their names, initials, and drawings. What implements had they used? Rocks, their fingernails. I looked closely and noticed that one image was repeated over and over and over again. The butterflies. Butterflies. In every concentration camp. In every concentration camp? I think so. I've only visited one, but I read books about other concentration camps where they found the same thing. And for 25 years, the next 25 years, you ask yourself the question, why the butterflies? Uh, and when did the answer come? And what was the answer? I guess after working with thousands of dying patients and watching so many people die, it's, it's a very beautiful experience. If they are finished, they're unfinished business, they just, they just take off and the person is no longer there. And then you can see, actually see with your eyes, it's like the butterflies taken off there, up there already. And the cocoon, the shell is left. The body is left The body's left, It yeah. doesn't matter what you do with it. People make such a fuss about it. Should we cremate, should we bury them? It makes no difference at all because you don't need it anymore. What do you want done with your body? My daughter is totally opposed to cremation, so to make her happy, I'm going to be buried. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't care less what they do with my body. Over the years, Elizabeth's studies took an unconventional turn when patient after patient told her stories about their near-death experiences and life after death. She began talking about channeling and became interested in spirit guides. She calls hers spooks, who acted like her personal angels. I asked her about this belief in mysticism, and here's what she told me. You say that if you're not ready for mystical experiences, you'll never believe them. But if you're open, then you not only have them and believe in them, people can hang you by your thumbnails, and you will know that the experiences are absolutely yeah. real. You know when you have experienced something that's real. So when all of your critics who say, who give you... Even oh, I'm going to sit on the other side and make like this and say, see, I told you so. Really? I can't wait for that. Over the years, though, when you were criticized by, you know, professionals, scientists, doctors, colleagues, who said that, yes, you did do a great deal for the hospice movement. Yes, you have helped our views of death and dying. But then when you move into that channeling spirit stuff, that you're a little wacko. Yeah, so yeah. I'm wacko. Did it bother you? Were you upset by it? Or no. was it like being hung by your thumbnails? It didn't matter. It has never mattered? It, I can't say it never mattered, but it never bothered me. Really? Because I know, I know when I share something, I know it's the truth. And if they can't hear the truth, it's their problem, not mine. Do you think we all have spirit guides? Naturally, every human being. Every human being yeah. has them. You too. Yeah. I think I do. I don't know them you by bet. name. Yeah. Doesn't matter. I think I have a team. Yeah. Not just one. I think a team's leading me. But I have all men, thank heavens. All men, thank yeah. heavens. <laughs> and so you've seen yours. Yeah. How do we see them if we want to? I tell people, if you have a question, ask before you go to sleep, and then you get your question answered in the morning when you wake up. That's the best time they can get through. 
everybody has different methods. That's my, for me, the easiest method. You can ask them for their names. You can ask them anything you need. And they will tell you? If you need it, they will tell you. If you only want it, you don't get it. Okay. You always get what you need, not what you want. Otherwise, I would have gotten a heck of a lot more, believe me. As you might expect, Elizabeth's not afraid to die. And as you might expect, she has her own plans about dying well. I asked her about it. You say after you die, you want your death to be a celebration? Yeah. Hooray, I made it, I graduated. <laughs> really? And yeah. so you've set it up that way, so it's yeah. like a party. Yeah. So you say, page 283, my family and friends will arrive from all parts of the world, wind their way through the desert, it is winding your way, too, through the desert, until they come upon a tiny white sign planted in the dirt road that says Elizabeth, and then drive until they reach the Indian teepee and the Swiss flag that stands high above my Scottsdale home. Some will be grieving. Others will know how relieved and happy I finally am. They will eat, trade stories, laugh, cry, and at some point release dozens of helium-filled balloons that look like E.T. into the blue sky. Of course, I will be dead, but why not throw a going away party? Why not celebrate? At 71 years old, I can say that I have truly lived. Right. Now, will you give us a sign? Yes. Will you? Yeah, I pinch in your tush. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a sign. Okay. Yeah. I'll look for it. I'll look for it. Thank you. You will not have to look hard. All right. Thank I you. I give clear signs. I'd like a really clear, strong one. I'm and very outspoken. I will make it so clear there's no shadow of a doubt. Really? We'll be looking, yeah. watching. Thank you, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Thank you. Thank you. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book is called The Wheel of Life. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. I'll be waiting for my sign. You ever met somebody in your life whose wisdom and kindness made you think about things in a different way? Uh, for Mitch Album, it was getting to know, again, an old college professor that changed his life. Mitch Album, a young sports writer, was alarmed when he turned on the TV one night only to see his former professor being interviewed by Ted Koppel. His ex-teacher, Maury Schwartz, was on TV because he was dying. Indeed, he explained in great detail how he had been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease and what it was like to receive a death sentence. Mitch went to go visit his former teacher, and soon that reacquaintance would change his life. Like they'd done 15 years earlier, teacher and student began meeting every Tuesday, and Mitch found himself learning from Maury all over again. He calls the book Tuesdays with Maury because that's when you would go to visit. Every Tuesday. Yeah. And you became aware of him watching Nightline. I had lost track of him for mm -hmm. 16 years. Mm -hmm. And then I turned on the Nightline program one night, and I see my old professor talking to Ted Koppel about what it's like to die. Mm -hmm. That's how I found out that he was dying. I called him the next day. I wasn't even sure he would remember me. He not only remembered me, he remembered the nicknames we used to have for one another back in wow. college. I flew to, to see him, thinking it would only be maybe one meeting. And I was so taken with his attitude about life, his serenity about how he had lived and how he was dying, that I found myself going back over and over and over. And pretty soon it was every Tuesday for the last four and a half months of his life, right up to the day he died. Were you scared at first? Because when you know someone's dying, there's always that 
moment of even like when I was walking into Elizabeth's house, but she's pretty darn feisty still. There's the expectation of what am I going to say and how am I going to say it and that whole kind of death shroud exactly. you feel. Yeah. Yeah, I was, but Maury had this great attitude about dying. He looked at it as a great opportunity to teach about the one subject that nobody really knows anything about until they get there. So he was already in that mode of wanting to share the whole dying experience and what it meant as to how you should live. So he made me feel like a student the minute I sat back down again. He started lecturing me and, you know, you should know this and that. And you talked about the world at first. And then you talked about, I mean, you divide the chapters into the, the various Tuesdays. Well, when, we, when I decided that we would do this book together, we broke each Tuesday down to sort of one subject that perplexes mm -hmm. people in life. Marriage and family or getting older how much you should work, that was a big one for me, mm -hmm. uh, and um, greed, forgiveness, forgiving people. And each week we would just sort of talk, because, you know, people always say, how would I live my life if I knew I had six months left to live? Would yeah. I change it? Well, here was a guy who was in exactly that situation. At the time, you were kind of pretty obsessed with your working life. I worked about 17, 18 hours a day, mm -hmm. and I think I thought that achievement Maybe the more I achieved, the less likely I would be to die. You know, mm -hmm. you do so much, you're too busy to die. You're too important to die. Mm -hmm. And Because uh, you got things to do. Yeah. Right. You know, I can't die. I have a plan. <laughs> I have appointments tomorrow. Well, yeah. Maury taught me that, you know, all the, all the hours of work that you do are not going to come back to you when you really need them the most. All the buildings you want to name after yourself or the stock portfolios you want to build are not going to comfort you the way that his friends, his old students, his family comforted him. So what you should be spending your time on is making those relationships with people and establishing yourself in their lives. And I had a lot to learn from him, still do. Maury's gift to Mitch and to all of us was his ability to step back and look at dying as a, another chance to teach. He was one of the great teachers. And before he died, he gave an interview to a public television station. He said, the culture we have does not make people feel good about themselves. And you have to be strong enough to say, if the culture doesn't work, don't buy it. Exactly. He never followed the norm. Uh, even when it came to funerals and dying, he, he went to a funeral when he was sick. And he came back and he said, this is a shame. This guy never got to hear all these nice things that people said. I want to have mine now. Mm -hmm. And that's what he did. He organized a living funeral where he invited his closest friends and family to come. And they all stood up and said what he had meant to them. But at the end, the deceased rose and thanked <laughs> the people for thanking him. Uh, which I think is a much better way to do it than to, to wait till we're gone. Maury says it's natural to die. The fact that we make such a big hullabaloo over it is uh, all because we don't see ourselves as a part of nature. Remember yeah. that conversation? He had a great story about that. He loved to tell stories, mm -hmm. and he said, there's this he wave and the she wave out in the ocean. The he wave is flopping around, having a great time, and all of a sudden he sees the shore. He realizes it's going to hit the shore. That's going to be the end. Starts to panic. The she wave comes along and says, well, what's the matter? The he wave says, oh, this is terrible. We got a couple more flips, and we're out of here. We never exist. It's terrible. And she says, you don't understand. You're not a wave. You're part of the ocean. Oh. And that's the way that he sort of looked at, as life and death as sort of being part of this whole big continuum. He says, here's the payoff. Here's how we're different. I love that story from these wonderful plants and animals. As long as we can love each other and remember the feeling of love we had, we can die without ever really going away. Yeah. All the love you created is still there. All the memories are still there. You live on in the hearts of everyone you have touched and nurtured while you were here. Death right. ends a life, not a relationship. You know, um, 
Most Don't y'all love that? Did the little hairs rise on your head <laughs> just now? It's just, God, goosebumps. The most poignant thing that I remember Maury telling me was just a couple weeks before he died, he asked me to come visit him at his grave. And he said, I want you to come. Come on Tuesdays. You're already coming on Tuesdays. Just <laughs> roll it around and come sit and talk to me. Tell me about your problems. I said, you want me to tell you about my problems sitting at your grave? He said, yeah. I said, well, you know, it's not going to be the same. You can't talk back. And he laughed and he said, well, tell you what, after I'm dead, you talk, I'll listen. <laughs> and he wasn't just being cute. I think what he meant by that was what you said in there, that if you spend your life here investing in people, making memories, uh, having good times with them and sharing yourself, then you never really do go away. I mean, you're not physically here, but you're, you know, you're here, you're up here. And I can have conversations with Maury even now, before I came on this show, I said, well, what do you think of this? Now this is the Oprah program, you know? <laughs> and uh, it's because we spent that quality time together. But if you spend your time working and you spend your time trying to make money, you don't make those memories. You don't live on inside somebody after you're gone. Wow. That's why I love this little book so much. Uh, and people always tell me after they read Tuesdays with Maury, they say, this reminds me of my old English teacher, such yeah. and such, my old art teacher. And then the next line is always, I wonder what happened to him. And I say, go back and find them, because teachers affect eternity. They touch you. They touch me. I'm talking to you. We're talking to all these people. They are so valuable and so unrewarded in this society. Now, find it changed them. your relationship, too, with your brother, did it not? My brother is uh, sick, also like Maury, has cancer. Uh, only unlike Maury, uh, he didn't invite everybody to spend time with him. He kind of straight-armed all of us. He lives overseas. And it was very frustrating because I love him. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, I want to spend time with him. And this experience with Maury, here was Maury inviting me in every Tuesday, and I can't see my brother. And Maury said, you have to understand that everybody has different ways of dealing with problems like this. And if you really love them, you make room for the way that they want to deal with it. Whoa. And that's how you show affection. And this has helped a lot. My brother, I dedicated the book to my brother. Yeah. And um, he read it, and he started crying halfway through it. And then he said, I'll read the rest of it when I get home. So um, it's helped a lot. Maury would have loved meeting you and talking to you. I know. Sure I read in the book he only saw one Oprah show. You know, that's, one more than, <laughs> that's one more than he watched of everybody else's. <laughs> yeah. This is Tom and his children, Zach and Kate. Tom lost his beloved wife, Kathleen, from lung cancer. Before she died, Kathleen tried to pack a lifetime of experiences into one short year. And Tom says she died peacefully after passing along some valuable lessons. She wanted to have a good death, correct? Uh, immediately after the unconceivable news, the diagnosis, we went into action in the way in which we coped with all other traumas before that, which was optimism and hope and focus on overcoming the uh, somewhat insurmountable odds. And that's the sort of energy we brought to dealing with it initially. Yeah. But it turns out that that energy sort of stiff arms is yeah. Mitch, you said stiff arms what is really going on, which is the fears of the unimaginable. And uh, once we understood that that's really what we needed to embrace, we got help, professional help, support at the Cancer Wellness Center. What we came to understand is that instead of coping with the fears, we had to wade into them. We had to face them. Ooh. And once we were able to learn how to do that, we became free of them. Really? And it meant having conversations that were indescribable. Uh, but we had them, the four of us, uh, the kids and Kathleen and I. We talked about 
funerals. We were you guys told in the beginning? How soon were you told that your mom had lung cancer? Um, yeah, the day. Honestly. The day? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, they were in on it from the very beginning. And uh, because we were able to open it up to the unimaginable fears, they didn't drive us any longer. They didn't control us. And we became free of fear and allowed us to be open to living in the moment. That was our secret to living in the moment is facing our fears and getting rid of them. And once we did, it became this fantastic cycle because it opened us up to pleasure and joy and love in ways that the four of us had never known. And it radiated among our family, our friends, our community. Really? Yeah, really. So kids, you have letters that your mom wrote? Uh, yeah, um, I received this about, I don't know, a week after my mom died. And uh, this is just a little part of it. 13-year-old boys don't need their moms too much, but they definitely need them from time to time. I so desperately, desperately wish I could be there for you, in body, not just in spirit. Fortunately for me, I won't have to bear the indignity of ever losing a tickle torture to you, <laughs> which no doubt would have happened in the near future. More seriously, though, with, when I, while I think about your life without me, while it brings me sadness, it also brings me pride. You have developed such tremendous qualities in your brief life on Earth that I enormous, I'm enormously gratified as I imagine you navigating your way even without me. Oh, Kate, what'd yours say? Keep me in your heart and hold me there in a way that gives you comfort, help, or support. If you do, I will never, ever leave you. I suspect I may even be able to help you during difficult times. If you just happen to me, I will, I will be inside you, leaving you, loving you, and caring about you every single minute of every single day for as long as you live. That's about it, sweetie, because I know what a tremendous girl you are. I'm confident in the kind of wonderful woman you will become. With this knowledge, I have grown to actually be able to face death with a sense of peace. You have helped me get there because I know you'll be all right. What are your fondest memories, Kate, of that time? When we went to uh, Palm Springs for family vacation. Mm -hmm. And she was in bed, but I came home after swimming, and she said, can you get me a bowl of Cheerios? And I said, sure. So mm -hmm. it, I remember that. A bowl of Cheerios. She, she ate everything. Really? She got up at 2 o'clock in the morning and went downstairs and ate. And about a week before she died, before she went into the hospital, I was in their room and sleeping, and she, I said, Mom, would you wake me up if you go downstairs to eat a bowl of cereal? She said, yeah. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, we both went down and we ate oh, That is really? Cheerio? Were the Cheerios? Yeah. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> I want to thank everybody, and especially we want to thank Kate and Zach for sharing those letters with us. I think we're all better people for having heard them. Thank you, Kate and Jack. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah Show, the podcast. And I thank you for listening.